In our first two episodes, we noted that Rome's fraying institutions are unable to stem the chaos and violence of Titus Andronicus. In this episode, we look further at classical literature and religion in the play to see how characters appeal to these traditions and why those appeals fail. Russ Leo, Associate Professor in the English Department at Princeton University, guides our discussion. Our first speech comes from Act 4. Titus has just found out that Lavinia was raped and mutilated by Tamora's sons, Emperor Saturninus's stepsons, Chiron and Demetrius. In this scene, Titus asks his relatives, Marcus, Publius and Sempronius, to help him search for justice. They think he may have gone mad, but humour his desires. Titus writes messages begging the gods for justice and wraps them around arrows, which he tells his kinsmen to shoot up to the gods, Pluto, god of the underworld, Jove, the king of the gods, and others. One of the key textual figures for this play is the Latin poet Ovid. It was his poem The Metamorphoses that let Lavinia reveal what had happened to her. At the start of this speech, Titus quotes a line from Ovid's Metamorphoses, Terras Astraea Reliquit. This act of citation signals the meaning and perhaps the comfort that Titus draws from the classical tradition, but the line itself is hardly comforting. It means Astraea, or goddess of justice, has left the earth. This scene illustrates the powerful presence of classical literature and mythology in these characters' cultural lives, but also suggests their futility. Terras Astraea reliquit. Be you remembered, Marcus, she's gone, she's fled. Sirs, take you to your tools. You, cousin, shall go sound the ocean and cast your nets. Happily you may catch her in the sea, Yet there's as little justice as at land. No, Publius and Sempronius, you must do it. Tis you must dig with mattock and with spade and pierce the inmost centre of the earth. Then, when you come to Pluto's region, I pray you deliver him this petition. Tell him it is for justice and for aid, and that it comes from old Andronicus. Shaken with sorrows in ungrateful Rome... Ah, Rome. Well, well, I made thee miserable. What time I threw the people's suffrages on him that thus doth tyrannise o'er me. Go, get you gone, and pray be careful all, and leave you not a man of war unsearched. This wicked emperor may have shipped her hence, and kinsmen then we may go pipe for justice. Oh, Publius, is not this a heavy case, to see thy noble uncle thus distract? Therefore, my lords, it highly us concerns, by day and night, to tend him carefully, and feed his humour kindly as we may, till time beget some careful remedy. Kinsman, his sorrows are past remedy. But join with the Goth. And with revengeful war, take wreak on Rome for this ingratitude, and vengeance on the traitor Saturnine. Publius, how now, how now, my masters? What, 
have you met with her? No, my good lord, but Pluto sends you word. If you will have revenge from hell, you shall. Marry, for justice, she is so employed, he thinks, with Jove in heaven or somewhere else, so that perforce you must need stay a time. He doth me wrong to feed me with delays. I'll dive into the burning lake below and pull her out of Acheron by the heels. Marcus, we are but shrubs, no cedars we, no big-boned men framed of the cyclops' size, but metal, Marcus, steel to the very back, yet wrung with wrongs more than our backs can bear. And Sith, there's no justice in heaven nor hell. We will solicit heaven and move the gods to send down justice for to wreak our wrongs. Come to this gear. You are a good archer, Marcus. Adjovem, that's for you. Here, ad Apollinem. Ad Martem, that's for myself. Here, boy, to Pallas. Here, to Mercury. To Saturn, Caius, not to Saturnine. <laughs> you were as good to shoot against the wind. <laughs> to it, boy. Marcus, loose when I bid. Of my word, I have written to effect. There's not a god left unsolicited. Kinsman, shoot all your shafts into the court. We will afflict the emperor in his pride. Now, masters, draw! The scene with Titus shooting the arrows is a kind of a, a pivotal scene that's often neglected in this play. This sense that like, this is what prayer looks like in this world. Now, for some reasons, some historical reasons, we're not going to find a religious play on the Shakespearean stage for legal reasons. There are things you can't show. Even in Dr. Faustus, like there are angels and devils, but you don't see God, you don't see saints. These are prohibited from performances. But Titus Andronicus really goes entirely the other direction where there is just like no, like if there's a Roman religious practice that we encounter in this play, it is human sacrifice in order to satisfy the dead. Right. There's that practice. Or you get something like this scene where like this is what prayer looks like in this world. As once again, Titus himself gives us the line from Ovid and reminds us like justice has left the earth. And then we get these addresses to various deities that kind of slips between comic where he wants to be sure, like, we send this to Saturn, not Saturninus. Like, no, you get this kind of comic wordplay. But at the same time, it's as if you, you get this stark vision of shooting prayers into the void. And even the fact that a prayer, an address to a god, has to be delivered via, like, arrow, via weapon, is telling in this world. It's as if they're being shot into a void. Like, there are no gods in the world of Titus Andronicus. There aren't even really devils. At the point at which 
you know, Aaron is asked to like confess, you know, what you are. He very clearly says, if there be devils, would I were a devil? Aaron makes his confession to Lucius after he is captured by the goth army. This is how the goth soldier explains how he came to find Aaron and his child. From our troops I strayed to gaze upon a ruinous monastery, and as I earnestly did fix mine eye upon the wasted building, suddenly I heard a child cry underneath a wall. A monastery, as a building where Christian orders of monks and nuns live and worship, would be an anachronism in the Roman world of this play, but a familiar idea to Shakespeare's audience. There were nearly 900 monasteries in England, which were dissolved by King Henry VIII at the start of the English Reformation. The mention of a monastery would have suggested this idea of institutions and traditions that have fallen, just as the power of Roman religion and prayer seem to have fallen in this scene. Shakespeare collapses here quite brilliantly. The landscape of late antiquity with an Elizabethan English landscape where there are ruined monasteries. This is a post-Reformation England. At the same time, there's something that's even speculative about this landscape. What we're meant to take from this is once again that these institutions are in ruins. These recognizable places, these fixtures of a once familiar landscape are now in disrepair. And that it's a monastery speaks directly to English audiences for whom this may very well have been a common aspect of Elizabethan life. Walking around the ruins of a pre-Reformation England. I think that's remarkable in this work. And, and the fact that like the monastery is in ruins at a key scene, it would be tempting to read all of this as like, look at the depravity of late antique Rome or something like that. However vague the historical milieu is. I also think this is a challenging play for Elizabethan audiences. Like, look at our institutions. Look at our traditions. Look at the ways we think about religion. Can any of us guarantee the audience of a god or, or God? Can any of us pray with any certainty? And even if we could, does it matter? Like, th there's a sense in which, like, this is a powerful testimony to, I hesitate to use the word in one sense, but then not really. Like it's in many ways like a nihilistic play. Like there is nothing outside of this world of force on the side of virtue or on the side of like the most depraved acts of the play. There's nothing. Our next speech comes from Act 5. Aaron and his child have just been captured by Lucius and the goth army. Lucius says... This is the incarnate devil that robbed Andronicus of his good hand. And he orders both Aaron and his son to be hanged. Aaron tells Lucius that if he saves the child, he will tell him wondrous things that highly may advantage thee to hear. Lucius replies, If it please me, which thou speaks, thy child shall live. Aaron's response picks up on this term, please. 
He intuits that what will please Lucius will be for him to perform the racialized identity that Lucius already believes he possesses, one in which blackness inherently corresponds with devilry, an association that was prevalent in Renaissance culture. We have already seen expressions of these racialized beliefs from other Romans, from the nurse who called Aaron's black child a devil, as loathsome as a toad amongst the fair-faced breeders of our clime, and from Lucius's own family. Bassianus tells Tamora, Your swarthy lover doth make your honour of his body's hue, spotted, detested, and abominable. And Lavinia mocks her for her raven-coloured love. Titus, too, calls Aaron a devil, this is the identity that Aaron performs in his speech in hopes of saving his child. And if it please thee, why, assure thee, Lucius, to vex thy soul to hear what I shall speak. For I must talk of murders, rapes and massacres, acts of black night, abominable deeds, complots of mischief, treason, villainies, ruthful to hear, yet piteously performed, and this shall all be buried in my death, unless thou swear to me my child shall live. Tell on my mind, I say thy child shall live. Swear that he shall, and then I will begin. Who shall I swear by? Thou believest no God. That granted, how canst thou believe an oath? What if I do not? As indeed, I do not yet, for I know thou art religious. As a thing within the called conscience, with twenty popish tricks and ceremonies, which I have seen thee careful to observe, therefore I urge thy oath, for that I know an idiot holds his bauble for a god and keeps the oath which by that god he swears. To that I'll urge him. Therefore thou shalt vow by that same god, what god soe'er be, that thou adorest and hast in reverence, to save my boy, to nourish and bring him up, or else... I will discover nought to thee. Even by my God, I swear to thee, I will. <sighs> First, know thou, I begot him on the Empress. Oh, most insatiate and luxurious woman! Tut, Lucius. This was but a deed of charity to that which thou shalt hear of me anon. T'was her two sons that murdered Bassianus. They cut thy sister's tongue and ravished her and cut her hands and trimmed her as they sawest. Oh, detestable villain! Callest thou that trimming? Why? She was washed, and cut, and trimmed, and t'was trim sport for them which had the doing of it. Oh, barbarous, beastly villains like thyself, indeed. I was their tutor to instruct them. That cunning spirit had they from their mother, as sure a card has ever won the set. That bloody mind, I think they learned of me. That you were dog as a fought at head. Well, 
Let my deeds be witness of my worth. I trained thy brethren to the gopher hole where the dead corpse of Bassianus lay. I wrote the letter that thy father found and hid the gold within that letter mentioned, confederate with the queen and her two sons. And what not done that thou hast caused to rue within, I had no stroke of mischief in it. I played the cheater for thy father's hand, and when I had it, drew myself apart and almost broke my heart with extreme laughter. <laughs> I pried me to the crevice of a wall when, for his hand, he had his two sons' heads, beheld his tears and laughed so heartily that both my eyes were rainy-like to his. And when I told the empress of this sport, she sounded almost at my pleasing tale, and for my tidings gave me twenty kisses. What? Canst thou say all this and never posh? I, like a black dog, as the saying is. Art thou not sorry for these heinous deeds? I, that I had not done a thousand more. Even now, I curse the day, and yet I think few come within the compass of my curse, wherein I did not some notorious ill as kill a man, or else devise his death, ravish a maid, or plot the way to do it, accuse some innocent, and forswear myself set deadly enmity between two friends, make poor men's cattles break their necks, set fire on barns and haystacks in the night and bid the owners quench them with their tears. Oft have I digged up dead men from their graves and set them upright at their dear friend's door, even when their sorrows almost was forgot, and on their skins, as on the bark of trees, have with my knife carved in Roman letters let not your sorrow die, though I am dead. <sighs> but I have done a thousand dreadful things, as willingly as one would kill a fly. And nothing grieves me heartily indeed but that I cannot do ten thousand more. Bring down the devil, for he must not die so sweet to death as hanging presently, if there be devils. Would I were a devil to live and burn in everlasting fire? So I might have your company in hell, but to torment you with my bitter tongue. Sirs, stop his mouth and let him speak no more. One thing that, that I think helps me understand Aaron 
in this play and that makes him something different than a kind of stock stage devil is, first of all, his singular care for the child. And then this final performance, and I, I mean performance deliberately, his performance really of racism that we find to the letter in the play is a performance he gives to please Lucius, to please Lucius enough to spare his child's life. He's going to be executed on the spot. And it's at this point that he entreats Lucius to save the child, to protect the child. And Lucius gives a condition. He says, say on, and if it please me, which thou speakst, thy child shall live and I will see it nourished. And it's at this point that Aaron delivers some of the most condemning lines about his behavior. Like it's a performance to please Lucius. He has to play a certain part, a deliberately racialized part in order to save his child. And so this is where he goes on. He says, if it please thee, he even draws attention to that very line. If it please thee, why assure thee, Lucius, twill vex thy soul to hear what I shall speak. For I must talk of murders, rapes, and massacres, acts of black night, abominable deeds, complots of mischief, treasons, villainies, ruthful to hear yet piteously performed, and this shall all be buried in my death, unless thou swear to me, my child shall live. Like, I think this is a crucial aspect of this play and a site where we can see some critical work being done on what it means to perform a racialized part. Like, it's not just that Aaron is racialized in such a way that we encounter him as racist caricature. And again, lest we forget, this is an actor playing the part in blackface. I would refer readers and listeners to really compelling scholarship on the history of blackface, not just in the United States, but internationally. But also here, he is put in a position where he has to play this part to save his child. And he plays the part. He gives these confessions of these grisly deeds that are done and always at every turn, he's careful to say, my deeds are indexed by my appearance. And why is he doing this? He's doing it to please Lucius. Like, I think that's a, a really, really important aspect, not just of Aaron's character in this play, but about how race and racialization work across these five acts. I think what this points to in the play is that racialization and, and racism belong to not just single characters, but it's about a system of expectations, about a whole structure of discourse. This is a performance that Aaron is really, at this point, coerced into doing that's going to prolong his, his life in some way, 
only a matter of minutes. And why? Like, why does he have to do this? They already know what they need to do. I mean, maybe there's the possibility that somehow the Andronici need his testimony to corroborate with what's going to be learned back in Rome in order to proceed accordingly. Maybe it's, we need Aaron alive long enough to give us proof that this was Chiron and Demetrius and Tamara. Like, that's an important aspect of it, of course. But also, he's coerced into presenting a version of himself where his deeds correspond to his appearance, to his race. And that's also, I think, a crucial aspect of how race works in this play. It tells us something. It's not just a world of difference without meaning. It's a world of differences that are related to each other. And that his difference, his racial difference, has to then somehow, at this crucial moment in the play, where Lucius, the Roman, is leading an army of the Goths, his difference, his racial difference, has to somehow legitimize what it is that Lucius is doing. And so race isn't just somehow on the margins of what's happening in this play. Here it is central to what's happening in, with these identities, these fluid identities, at a crucial moment where the Roman is leading the Goths and to legitimize his power asks the so-called Moor here, Aaron, to confess how his acts are actually in some ways, just expressions of what he is racially. Aaron performs the identity that Lucius wants and expects in order to advance his own purpose. But the speech will be made to serve Lucius's purpose too. At the end of the play, Aaron is offered as a witness to the crimes of the imperial family that the Andronici have killed, though it is Aaron himself they call chief architect and plotter of these woes. The Romans accept the Andronici's story. Give sentence on this execrable wretch that hath been breeder of these dire events, they say. Lucius, who has invaded Rome with an army of foreign soldiers, displaces guilt onto this other foreigner whose villainous nature seems to everyone so obviously clear. Our final speech comes from Act 5. Tamora plans to trick Titus into obeying her will and persuading Lucius to call off his attack. Her strategy is to appear to Titus as the spirit of revenge and promise to help him secure vengeance against his enemies. Chiron and Demetrius accompany her as her ministers rape and murder, disguises that will be made all too real. If thou didst know me, thou wouldst talk with me. I am not mad. I know thee well enough. Witness this wretched stump. Witness these crimson lines. Witness these trenches made by grief and care. Witness the tiring day and heavy night. Witness all sorrow that I know thee well for our proud empress, mighty Tamara. 
Is not thy coming for my other hand? No, thou sad man. I am not Tamara. She is thy enemy, and I thy friend. I am revenge, sent from the infernal kingdom to ease the gnawing vulture of thy mind by working wreakful vengeance on thy foes. Come down and welcome me to this world's light. Confer with me of murder and of death. There's not a hollow cave or lurking place, no vast obscurity or misty veil where bloody murder or detested rape can couch for fear, but I will find them out. And in their ears, tell them my dreadful name. Revenge. Which makes the foul offender quake. Art thou revenge? And art thou sent to me to be a torment to mine enemies? I am. Therefore, come down and welcome me. Do me some service ere I come to thee. Lo, by thy side where rape and murder stands, now give some assurance that thou art revenge. Stab them, or tear them on thy chariot wheels, and then, I'll come and be thy wagoner and whirl along with thee about the globe. Provide thee two proper palfreys, black as jet, to hail thy vengeful wagon swift away and find out murderers in their guilty caves. And when thy car is loaded with their heads, I will dismount and by thy wagon wheel trot like a servile footman all day long, even from Hyperion's rising in the east until his very downfall in the sea. And day by day I'll do this heavy task, so thou destroy rapine and murder there. These are my ministers, and come with me. Are they thy ministers? What are they called? Rape and murder, therefore call it so, cause they take vengeance of such kind of men. Good lord! How like the Empress sons they are! And you, the Empress! But we worldly men have miserable, mad, mistaking eyes. Ah, sweet revenge! Now do I come to thee, and if one arm's embracement will content thee. I will embrace thee in it by and by. He exits above. This closing with him fits his lunacy. Whate'er I forge to feed his brain-sick humours, do you uphold and maintain in your speeches? For now he firmly takes me for revenge. And being credulous in this mad thought, I'll make him send for Lucius his son. And whilst I at a banquet hold him sure, I'll find some cunning practice out of hand to scatter and disperse the giddy Goths, or at the least make them his enemies. Oh, see, here he comes, and I must ply my theme. Enter Titus. Long have I been forlorn, and all for thee. Welcome, dread fury, to my woeful house. Rapine and murder, you, you are welcome to. How like the empress and her sons you are. 
well are you fitted, had you but a moor, could not all hell afford you such a devil? For well I want the empress never wags, but in her company there is a moor. And would you represent our queen aright, it were convenient you had such a devil. But welcome, as you are. What shall we do? What wouldst thou have us do, Andronicus? Show me a murderer, I'll deal with him. Show me a villain that hath done a rape, and I am sent to be revenged on him. Show me a thousand that hath done thee wrong, and I will be revenged on them all. Titus to Demetrius Look round about the wicked streets of Rome, and when thou find'st a man that's like thyself, good murder, stab him. He is a murderer. To Chiron, go thou with him, and when it is thy hap to find another that is like to thee, good rapine, stab him. He is a ravisher. To Tamara, go thou with them, and in the emperor's court there is a queen attended by a moor. Well shalt thou know her by thine own proportion, for up and down she doth resemble thee. I pray thee, do on them some violent death. They have been violent to me and mine. One of the things I think is very notable about this play is that by using quotes and allusions, I think is this is a real dramatic victory, and we need to recognize this. You get a sense in this play that these works matter to the characters in the play. This is not just adornment. This is not kind of set dressing. Actually, in that way, this is where Shakespeare feels very humanist to me. Like these are quotations that aren't dropped into conversation to make somebody sound smarter. These quotes have like concrete meaning to the characters. I think this is also seen when Tamara, Chiron, and Demetrius appear to Titus in the guise of justice, raping, or rape, and murder. In Titus Andronicus, characters use literature and reading to process their experience. But up to this point, that has happened chiefly through quotations and allusions. In this scene, the main literary function is allegory, a common mode of writing in Elizabethan England. In allegorical texts, a character stands in for some more abstract quality, like greed, and their actions reveal some truth about that quality for the reader who can decipher the meaning of their actions. What makes the text valuable to the reader is not that they learn the story of this one character, it's that they understand the deeper truth about greed. And so, in allegory, the character's individual identity tends to be dissolved within their larger conceptual meaning. That's precisely what we see happening here to Chiron and Demetrius in relation to Titus. In a lesser play, this would be a kind of vague allegory or just a matter of disguise that's seen through instantly. In a lesser play, it would be like, okay, there are three guilty parties who are in disguise and 
Titus is able to see through this. But Shakespeare doesn't give that to us here. He gives us something much more dynamic. Like, they appear in allegorical guise, but the allegories they assume are not wrong. So it actually confronts us with how allegory works. Like, what difference does it make to Titus if Chiron and Demetrius are Chiron and Demetrius or rape and murder? Like, that is their meaning to him. And so it asks us to think about, like, how allegory works. On one level, of course, it's not a good disguise. But, like, what difference does it make? Do I afford them kind of identities as discrete people? Like, they have played these roles in my life. They are rape and murder. This is precisely what they mean for Titus and Lavinia. Titus concludes, I pray thee, do on them some violent death. They have been violent to me and mine. Chiron and Demetrius have no meaning left for him as persons. They have only an allegorical meaning as embodiments of rape and murder. And he will respond in kind, dealing only violence to figures who mean only violence. Just after this scene, he will invite Lavinia to join him as he binds the two men and cuts their throats. As he kills them, he makes one more literary allusion. For worse than Philomel, you used my daughter, and worse than Procne, I will be revenged. Philomel was raped by Tyrius. Her sister Procne was Tyrius's wife. Ovid tells of how Procne, for revenge, killed her and Tyrius's own son and fed him to her husband at a banquet, just as Titus will do with Chiron and Demetrius. Once again, Titus models his action upon a classical text. And so here again, it's this kind of literary project. The project of allegory, the importance of reading and the importance of quoting here. Why does anybody read or quote? Like, it's in so many ways. It's because Shakespeare dissolves these distinctions, these hard distinctions between art and life. And so when they do read texts from the classical world, they're like literally using them to testify to their own experience in the case of Lavinia or in the case where these allegorical characters appear and one expects them in some sense to be abstractions. They're not abstractions at all. I think Shakespeare's constantly drawing our attention to not just like that there is a classical literature or that there is poetry, but also like he's showing us over and over in this play that this has concrete meaning for us. Like this is not abstracted from our life. Shakespeare for All is written and produced by Maria Devlin McNair. Executive producer is Zachary Davis. Associate producer and narrator is Gemma Deer. Original music and sound design is by Jack Pombriant. This episode featured performances by the following actors. Jonathan Oliver for Titus, Marcus, and Publius. Teres Astrea Reliquit. Yolanda Ovide for Aaron, Lucius, and the Goths. And If It Please Thee. Tiffany Abercrombie for Tamora, Titus, Chiron, Demetrius. If thou didst know me. For this course, information was drawn from and ideas were inspired by the following sources. Jonathan Bate, How the Classics Made Shakespeare. 
Colin Burrow, Shakespeare and Classical Antiquity, and Shakespeare and Humanistic Culture. Michael Dobson et al., the Oxford Companion to Shakespeare. Jeff Dolvin and Sean Kalin, Shakespeare's Reading. Marjorie Garber, Shakespeare After All. Heather James, Shakespeare's Troy. Alexander Legat, A Modern Perspective, Titus Andronicus. Robert S. Miola, Shakespeare's Rome, and Past the Size of Dreaming, Shakespeare's Rome. Carrie Niederman, Niccolo Machiavelli, and the following editions of Titus Andronicus, the 2011 RSC Shakespeare, the 2016 Norton Shakespeare, and the 2018 Arden Shakespeare. Shakespeare for All is a Lyceum original production and available wherever you get your podcasts. Learn more about the show by visiting shakespeareforall.com. Thanks for listening. See you next time.